They're lining up the prisoners and the guards are taking aim. I struggle with some demons, they were middle class and tame. I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. You want it darker? Hineni, hineni. I'm ready, my lord. Leonard Cohen, you want it darker. This episode is set to be released Monday, May 31st of 2021, which is the 100th anniversary of the penultimate events of what's now known as the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. If any of you listening have been with us since the beginning of this podcast, you know that this event or the coming to know this event was one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast in the first place because it was a major part of Oklahoma's history that uh, I had never learned about until I was 15. And even when I was 15, I had to learn about it. You know, it was something I came across. It was not something that was taught to me. Um, Secondly, um, I said that I wanted to cover Oklahoma's good and bad. And this is the worst of the bad. There, there, I don't think there is a single event in Oklahoma's history that gets any darker than what we're going to go over today and again next week. So this podcast has only been around for a couple of months, but we're sinking to the deepest depths that we can go fairly quickly. Tulsa, like most of the settings that we've gone over in this podcast, is in northeastern Oklahoma, uh, one of the most, obviously, most historic parts of the states where most of the tribes that were removed to Oklahoma located, and it was also the site of the, the oil boom of Oklahoma. So Tulsa, for instance, lies southeast, directly southeast of Osage County, where uh, the Osage Indians found that tremendous oil wealth and led to the Osage murders that we went over last week and is chronicled in Killers of the Fire Moon. And Tulsa is also located southwest of Rogers County, which is where Claremore is located, which obviously birthed not only the Battle of Claremore Mound, but also Will Rogers and his progeny. So obviously this is a very, very important area for Oklahoma history. The name Tulsa comes from a word in the original Creek language, so the Creek Nation, which was the people who originally settled that after removal, comes from a Creek word called Talasi, Talisi. Uh, I've heard several different pronunciations. If you're a, a speaker of the Creek language, please get in touch with me so I can learn how to pronounce it correctly. But translates to Old Town in the Creek language and eventually became anglicized to Tulsa. And going back to a couple of weeks ago with uh, the review of Killers of the Flower Moon and the discussion of the Osage murders, if you remember anything about that episode or the time period that it covered, Uh, Tulsa was right in the epicenter of early 20th century oil exploration and quickly became like Leadville, if you remember, way back when we talked about Leadville, Colorado, becoming one of the richest areas in the world because of mining. Tulsa became one of the richest places in the world for a short time because of oil. And to this day, Tulsa, excuse me, still refers to themselves as the oil capital of the world. 
So with that ton of oil wealth, Tulsa absolutely boomed in the early part of the 20th century, producing a large amount of buildings and producing a large amount of gilded-style mansions in South Tulsa, excuse me, gilded-age-style mansions in South Tulsa that a lot of them are still there if you uh, want to go for a drive or if you want to look them up. And that concentration of wealth in one area was not necessarily centered only in the white part of Tulsa. There obviously were a lot of people there, uh, white men, um, Native Americans, but also black men. Uh, and the black area of Tulsa in the slightly north of downtown area became known as Greenwood. And it quickly, with the wealth of Tulsa, became one of the wealthiest African-American uh settlements in all of the United States. This area was dubbed as Black Wall Street by Booker T. Washington after a 1913 visit. Uh, referred to Black Wall Street mainly because of the uh, hub of commerce and the amount of money that was in this one area, even though as Randy Creeble rightly points out that this is actually more accurately would be referred to as Black Main Street because it was more of a commercial center rather than a financial center. Whereas if you think of Wall Street, Wall Street's home to uh, large banks, investment banks, and stock markets, whereas uh, Greenwood and Black Wall Street didn't actually have any of those financial institutions. But what they did have was a large amount of uh, other commercial centers that you would see in any other Main Street in America. And that in Greenwood, it was a largely African-American community, and it was extremely developed, and it was extremely wealthy compared to other parts of the country. And if you think about it, this makes sense. Oklahoma, well, Tulsa and basically all of Oklahoma at this time was extremely segregated. Uh, worst of the Jim Crow laws that you can imagine were implemented in the state. And this created, obviously, de facto segregation, but it also created uh, an alternative market for people with money. And uh, the economist Thomas Sowell sometimes talks about something similar with the building of the railroads in the, un in the American West – uh, in the 1800s, whereby there was one wage for African-American workers and there's one wage for white workers and the wage for white workers was higher than the wage for African-American workers. This is bad and this is immoral, but it also created something like a racism tax, whereas uh, people working on the or railroad men who would go out of their way to pay white employees higher wages than black employees were essentially paying a premium on their racism. And something similar happened here that by creating a segregated Tulsa, those white Tulsans in kind of mainstream central Tulsa were foregoing a lot of rev possible revenue by segregating the black citizens of Tulsa off in Greenwood or Black Wall Street. And what they forfeited was all of that revenue and all of that business and all of that money, allowing Black Wall Street and Greenwood to become extremely wealthy area, which would conceivably create some resentment, especially amongst, say, people who had just come back from war. And this also created some economic opportunity for entrepreneurial African-Americans. Uh, famously in this time, there was a guy named J.B. Stratford, who was an attorney in Tulsa, who was also a major developer of the area, so went ahead and bought up that area in Greenwood pretty early on and ended up selling it as a premium and developing it into Black Wall Street. And though it was true that Greenwood was a very prosperous district and Greenwood was a very wealthy district, there were some problems. Like with most boom towns, a lot of the infrastructure was put up very quickly and therefore was kind of inferior to older, more planned cities 
Uh, so the infrastructure in Greenwood was not where a lot of its residents wanted it to be. And its sanitation was a little bit uh, under quality for also where the residents wanted it to be. And the residents of Greenwood a couple times would petition the Tulsa government to install better sanitation in the Greenwood area. And the, according to Creeble anyway, the Tulsa government basically just laughed them off. And this was indicative of the racial situation in Tulsa at the time. Uh, like I said earlier, Tulsa, like all of Oklahoma, had fairly strict Jim Crow laws. And there were a disturbing amount of recent lynchings, including a lynching of a young white man who ended up being hung from a billboard that you could see from the road. So that mob vigilante justice element in Tulsa for all of its wealth was still there and the people were still on alarm. And especially there was an interesting labor makeup, which you had all these recent World War I veterans coming home, and you also had the creation of that post-World War I National Guard in Oklahoma, which was entirely comprised of World War I veterans, who were all very trained, very armed, and very knowledgeable of how to handle themselves in a gunfight. This brings us to May 30th, 1921, the beginning of what's now Memorial Day weekend, but was the time was still a holiday weekend. And though we're beginning our story here, I want to start out by saying that a lot of the on-the-ground stories are very speculative of what happened in the Tulsa Race Massacre. Not from a 30,000 feet view. From a 30,000 feet view, we basically know exactly what happened. We know the destruction. We know largely the motive. We know the victims. We know the perpetrators to a certain extent. But the closer you get to the on the ground nuts and bolts of the event, things begin to get more speculative. Uh, I've done my good faith best to come up with the most true coherent timeline of what happened according to what we know. Where it gets speculative, I'm going to tell you, and where I'm, if I editorialize, editorialize at all, which I'm going to do my best not to do, I will tell you. But I'm giving you a heads up that you're going to hear me say this is speculative a lot in this story. So our tragedy begins on May 30th, 1921, in the Drexel Building in downtown Tulsa in the afternoon, where a shoe shiner named Dick Rowland, otherwise known as Diamond Dick, had an encounter with a 17-year-old Sarah Page, who was a young white divorcee. Dick Rowland was a young black shoeshiner. And here's where the speculation begins, because in the court records, in the records that we have from Dick Rowland's family, we're not sure a lot of the background of Dick Rowland. We're not sure if his listed parents were his parents, his grandparents, or his adopted parents, they're all listed as those things in different areas. We're not really sure where he was originally born. We're not really sure how he got to Tulsa, but we do know that he was in the Drexel building on that day at that time. And we also know that this was not the first time that he had met Sarah Page. This is another area of speculation, whether or not they were friends who went to the same nightclubs or whether or not they were uh, passive acquaintances, or if there was something more, if there was a romantic relationship involved. But it is pretty certain that there were other things involved with Dick Rowland and Sarah Page. What we do know for certain is that there was an encounter in an elevator and that there was a scream. 
And at the time, they couldn't really ascertain if this was an assault. It was reported as an assault. Uh, the police would treat it as an assault. But later on, it would be thought that what more likely happened is that Roland accidentally tripped in the elevator and probably startled Miss Page, and that that was the cause, the first chink in the armor that started all of this tragedy. So later that day, again, May 30th, the police were informed, but they didn't even start a manhunt because they didn't think it was that necessary. And Miss Page didn't even say that she intended to press charges against Mr. Roland. So it started off rather low level considering what would happen next. So next we move to May 31st. So the day after, and Mr. Rowland had gone to his mother's house in Greenwood, where he was arrested by two officers, a white and a black officer, and taken to the city jail in Tulsa. But because, if you remember, like I said earlier, Tulsa had a fear of lynchings going on, and they had indeed elected a new sheriff, uh, specifically on a reform platform to stop those lynchings, uh, under this notice, Roland was moved to the county courthouse after the police commissioner became concerned about a potential lynch mob. And here's where we get the contributing factor number two for the Tulsa race massacre. If contributing factor number one was just the racial makeup or racial resentment in Tulsa, contributing factor number two, which Randy Kreeble in his book, Tulsa 1921, focuses on is the media and how the Tulsa media played into the massacre. And here on May 31st, the Tulsa Tribune in their afternoon edition ran a story. I'm going to say this verbatim, nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator. Tulsa Tribune was known for their sensationalist headlines. This was just journalistic malpractice. Uh, from what we from what we know, like I said, the only thing that's really known for sure was that there was an encounter in an elevator in a scream. But from all from all circumstantial evidence, it didn't appear to be really an assault, certainly not a sexual assault, but the Tulsa Tribune described the encounter as basically Roland lurking in the halls of the Drexel building, looking around to see if anybody was going to catch him and acting as a predator and getting into the elevator to attack Miss Page. And they described Miss Page as a young gal working as an elevator operator to work her way through college. Given the racial tensions in the politics in Tulsa at the time, again, this is journalistic malpractice. So this is the beginning of contributing factor number two for the cause of the Tulsa race massacre. Further, and this is where we get into probably one of the biggest points of speculation of the entire set of events that came to be known as the Tulsa race massacre, is the phantom editorial that called for a lynching. There is a rumor, or probably more likely a legend, amongst many individuals who were in Tulsa at the time that the Tulsa Tribune or another Tulsa paper ran either in the afternoon or evening edition an editorial calling for the lynching of Dick Rowland. If that was run, if that editorial ever existed in reality, we don't have a copy of it. Uh, there was a reward offered if anybody had a surviving copy of this 
of this editorial and that reward was never claimed. Uh, that's two possibilities. The first possibility and what Occam's Razor would tell you is that that editorial never actually existed. Or the second possibility, which is that the Tulsa paper just stopped running it probably immediately after it came out. So only a certain amount of copies ever existed in the first place. We have no clue. I'm not going to speculate on its existence. I'll leave that to better and smarter people. What we do know is that it definitely set the black community in Tulsa on edge, rightly on edge, uh, considering the considering the recent lynchings in Tulsa, considering the sensationalist reporting of the Tulsa Tribune, and also just the rampant racism that went on in the city at the time, it was particularly reasonable to believe that Dick Rowland's life was in danger. And by 7 p.m. that night, crowds had already begun to gather around the courthouse. And this is another area of some speculation where some accounts would say that a lot of these crowds were agitators seeking to form a lynch mob and to lynch Dick Rowland, whereas other reports say that most of these people were actually not armed, who were not actually agitating, they were just observing. Now, again, speculation, this is some of my editorializing, probably some of this is a bit of both. We do know that there were men who tried to get into the courthouse and demand Dick Rowland. Now, Sheriff McCullough, who was the newly elected sheriff of Tulsa, was, remember, elected as a reformer to stop this lynching, to his credit, actually had Dick Rowland pretty well defended in the Tulsa County Jail. The great irony here is that on May 31st, 1921, Dick Rowland was probably the safest black man in all of Tulsa. So while this crowd of largely white people is gathering outside the Tulsa County Courthouse, uh, in Greenwood, there was a large group of black World War I veterans who were preparing to go to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland against the mob. Now, there are two contributing factors to this. The first being, as I said earlier, the reasonable belief that Dick Rowland's life was in danger, which again is perfectly reasonable and was cause enough for a bunch of young World War II veterans to seek to go defend an innocent man's life. Secondly, there are accounts that people, that black citizens of Tulsa were told by Sheriff McAuliffe to be armed and to come to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland, maybe under the belief that there would be a larger lynch mob to try to nab Dick Rowland, and that Sheriff McAuliffe told black citizens of Tulsa to come act as defense at the courthouse. We don't know if this happened. Um, people believe this sincerely, the people that went to defend Dick Rowland. I'm not going to editorialize. Now, it would be possible because at this time, Tulsa only had about, uh, I, th I think it's listed about 70 police officers. And again, this is also at the end of the month, which meant that the police shifts were changing. So the organization in the Tulsa Police Department was not good. So there would be fear fears of understaffing for Dick Rowland's defense. But what ended up happening is that a large group of war veterans armed war veterans, uh, began to go to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland to prevent a lynch mob or to defend Dick Rowland against a lynch mob. Sheriff McAuliffe, very quickly realizing the gravity of the situation, began trying to tell this group of armed African-American men to go back home and that Dick Rowland was in no course of danger and that the best course of events were them to just go home. But unfortunately, 
Sheriff McAuliffe was too late at this point and a bridge had been crossed and McAuliffe in all of Tulsa had to stand and watch it burn, literally. Because it was at this point where much of the white men in that crowd began to go home to grab their weapons and return. And not only that, we saw a group of white men attempt to go break into the National Guard armory and steal their weapons and bring them back to the courthouse. Thankfully, the National Guard had been put on alert and these men were prevented from doing so. But again, a lot of white men simply went and got their guns and came back to the courthouse. And all this time, while that is going on, we have more black men coming from Greenwood armed to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland from a lynch mob. So we have two, two large sets of human beings at this courthouse. One being the black men who were convinced that there was a lynch mob out for Dick Rowland. Again, a very reasonable belief. And a second group of armed white men who believed, even though this is probably a retcon belief, that there was some sort of African-American uprising, that there was some sort of revolution going on, being caused by people who want too much equality or being caused by communists. Or if you can tell by the inflection of my voice, I think that this was a made-up excuse to go get the gun and try to start a fight. So while these two contingents are basically staring each other down at the courthouse, law enforcement began to try to disarm the gathered masses, and there was an instance where a white law enforcement officer uh, attempted to disarm an African-American man of his pistol, and the African-American man, according to Kreebel anyway, had no intention of being disarmed, and in the scuffle there was a shot fired either accidentally or either fired as a warning shot, but no matter what reason the shot was fired, it sparked the match that would burn down much of Tulsa. And within moments, they were shooting, and both black and white men lay dying or shot in the middle of the street outside the courthouse. And this is where we move into the first major phase of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which I'll refer to as the Battle of Greenwood. There was a large scene of chaos and there's a large amount of firsthand experiences of what happened next. I don't have the wherewithal to cover these coherently, but from a 30,000 feet angle, what eventually happened is that the black contingent retreated into Greenwood part of Tulsa and they were chased by the white contingent from the courthouse. Here, we do know that there were rumors that there were more African-American men coming in on train cars to aid in the uprising, I guess, and that it's documented that train cars that were coming into Tulsa were caught in the crossfire and that people on those train cars had to duck. At this point, cars of white men were indiscriminately firing into Greenwood and receiving return fire from people in their homes and in their businesses. White families that had live-in black employees in other parts of Tulsa began to be accosted by rioters being told to give up their black employees to the rioters. And it's at this junction of chaos that the Battle of Greenwood would turn into the second part of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which I will call the Burning. This is where the white mobs who were driving into the Greenwood part of Tulsa began to set 
the houses in the buildings on fire, literally, putting them to flame to burn them down. And in the early hours of that morning, Greenwood went up in flames. All while this is happening, the National Guard units based in Tulsa and other parts of Tulsa law enforcement were seeking to detain African-American men near the, excuse me, near the county courthouse, but really just indiscriminately. They were, they were detaining African-American men they just found on the street and taking them to several detainment centers, which included a baseball stadium and county fairgrounds, ostensibly for their safety, probably for ulterior motives that maybe there was a fear that these black men would shoot white men. You can make your own conclusions. But that seems to be really what the Tulsa law enforcement was focused on at the time. There does, again, this is another area of speculation of exactly what was happening. There have been reports that the Tulsa Police Department did go to Greenwood with an attempt to put those fires out. And when they got there, they were greeted by armed by an armed white mob who were intended who were intent on preventing the the fire department from putting out those fires and to let those fires spread throughout all of Greenwood. And this burning and this chaos would go through all the night and into the early morning until about five in the morning when there was either a siren or a whistle blown. We're not sure what, but we do know that there was a sound. And that this takes us from the burning into the part that I will simply call the massacre. After 5 a.m., there seemed to be an all-out assault on the Greenwood district of Tulsa with rioters indiscriminately shooting people in Greenwood. And there also comes to the point where we need to discuss the possibility of attacks from the air, which is another part of a lot of speculation with the Tulsa Race Massacre. There were airplanes in the sky. There were surplus planes from World War I that were being flown out of the air landing strip in Tulsa that were over Greenwood. Officially, these planes were used for reconnaissance. So the planes were definitely there. The planes themselves are not a matter of speculation, but what the planes were doing is another matter of speculation. There are firsthand accounts of people in Greenwood at the time who said that there were guns being fired from the planes. There were other accounts saying that firebombs were being dropped from the planes. We do not think that there were any explosives dropped from the planes, so like explosive bombs. For that reason, because it appears that nothing in Greenwood actually exploded, but it burned. We do know, though, that there were confirmed fires that started on the rooftops of buildings in Greenwood, which would make sense if incendiary bombs were dropped from the air. So it remains very possible that there were incendiary bombs dropped from the air onto Greenwood on June on that early mornings of June 1st of 1921. One of the reasons that it's kind of hard to speculate on what actually happened is because a lot of this a lot of this time was or a lot of what we know from what was happening at this point comes from a fictionalized account of the massacre written by John Hope Franklin who is a prominent African-American, Tulsa resident, Greenwood resident, who wrote his account in a fictionalized version in 1931. It is fictionalized. Uh, Hope Franklin wrote it as a fictional account. He seemed to have made up several characters for the account, but massive areas of his recollection in this story 
turns out to be his actual recollection from the Tulsa Race Massacre. So that is the rough timeline of what is happening in Greenwood, basically from the late night to the early morning. You might ask yourself, what the hell is the government doing at this time? What is going on with the mayor? What is going on with the state government? Uh, what, what's happening? Are, are, are they doing nothing? The answer is actually no. Uh, the Oklahoma governor was alerted in that, that what was going on in Tulsa, and the state National Guard troops began assembling in Oklahoma City in the late night and the early morning. However, because of that late notice, the Oklahoma National Guard units were not going to be able to get to Tulsa until that next morning. So all through the night, the riders basically had free reign over Greenwood, which is why you saw that incredible amounts of burning and the incredible amounts of mayhem in the events that would lead us to not call this the Tulsa Race Riot, but rather the Tulsa Race Massacre. Because riot is a misnomer because of the amount of unequality of power and the unequality of destruction that happened in these two days in Tulsa. So even as of that early morning of June 1st, some Tulsans tried to go about their days as normal, and there is a story that Kreebel tells about a guy, I believe a white man, waking up, trying to walk to work, getting to work, realizing that he doesn't feel well before finding that he has actually been shot. But thankfully, Later that morning, Adjutant General Charles Barrett shows up in Tulsa with the rest of the Oklahoma National Guard that had just come in from Oklahoma City, and before 12 noon, Tulsa is under martial law. And this is where we'll transfer to the fourth part of the Oklahoma, or excuse me, the Tulsa Race Massacre that I will call the smoldering. And for me, the smoldering began the second that General Barrett declared martial law in Tulsa, when Tulsans could step back and really begin to fathom the course of events that had occurred in their cities. Uh, at this point, more than 5,000 black Tulsa residents uh, were interred in makeshift holding facilities, uh, like I said before, uh, in convention centers or baseball fields. Uh, many more had simply fled Tulsa, fled into the Osage Hills. Uh, many fled to other areas. Many fled to Oklahoma City. Uh, again, like I said earlier, many had who had uh, white employers had fled to their house, and some were being housed in uh, with those employers, and many more had unfortunately just died. Um, the uh, the death toll is something that we'll get to, and it, it's it's really uh, it's really frightening. But from the beginning, that any Tolson stepped outside that morning, they could see that. Many, many blocks of formerly prosperous Tulsa was no more. That Greenwood had been burned to the ground. It was sitting smoldering in embers. In the end, as of the 2001 Commission on the Race Massacre, there are 39 confirmed dead. And But that number is, is widely, universally believed to be, to be vastly, vastly under, underreported for reasons that we will get to next week. And... With that, I want to leave on a solemn and, uh, you know, just a, just a solemn note that we will come back next week to talk about the events in the aftermath of the Tulsa Race Massacre and the events immediately 
preceding um, these couple of days in Tulsa because obviously the ramifications of an event like this would go on for generations and years and can still be felt to this day. And with that, I'm Will Milam. This is the America of America podcast, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening.